welcome back to another episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics completionist podcast, the only podcast around that is going through the history of DC Comics an issue at a time, starting from Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one. I am your host, as always, Nick Byers. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, thank you for your patience uh, during the February or latter half of Feb- February break. Uh, I definitely needed it. I was feeling very stressed out from moving and and starting a new job and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, you know, it's always weird to move away from where you've been living. I was I was at home for a while for about six months and and then I uh, got a job and moved and uh, so I was feeling a little bit stressed out. But uh, I have rested, I have recuperated, and I am ready to get back into the grind. Uh, in a good way, of the podcast and our our march towards the present, even though that's probably an uh, impossible goal. But we're back into it, so let's get into it. Uh, This week, on this week's episode, we're going to be covering Tales of the Teen Titans, number 53, Vigilante, number 17, and Batman, number 383. Uh, But as always... Before we do that, we got to set the scene with the real-world history of, of what was going on when these issues were coming out. So, February 8th, 1985, CBS airs the final episode of The Dukes of Hazard, uh, which is a weird show about uh, the Duke clan in, in the South, where the, the they're like moonshiners and they get into trouble, and their car is called the General Lee and has the Confederate flag on it. Uh, it's not... It hasn't aged well as a concept. I mean, even at the time, the sort of lost cause uh, rhetoric in the South was still very, very prevalent. I mean, it still is today in a certain aspects of the South, but uh, it's not great. Uh, so it's good. And also one of the Duke boys, like the actors, he's now a, a right wing uh, uh, MAGA chud. So uh, the less we talk about the Dukes of Hazard, the better. Uh, February 14th, 1985, Lebanon, the Lebanon hostage crisis. CNN reporter Jeremy Levine, or Levin, is freed. Oh, it's probably Levin. It's not Levine because there's no E at the end. Uh, is freed from captivity in Lebanon. Uh, the hostage crisis itself was the taking of 104 hostages from 1982 to 1992 during the height of the Lebanese Civil War. Also on the 14th, 21-year-old female singer Whitney Houston releases her debut album, Whitney Houston. It was nominated for four Grammys, but there is a bit of controversy controversy around it because Whitney Houston was not nominated for Best New Artist, even though this was her debut album. And the reason for that is because she did uh, some guest vocals on uh, a few songs in 1984. Uh, a lot of people mad about that. She likely would have won Best New Artist if she had been nominated. She's Whitney Houston. Uh, but the Academy is kind of dumb that way. Or the, the Grammys, uh, the Academy is typically the Oscars. Uh, February 15th, uh, John Hughes' The Breakfast Club is released in theaters. It's a cult classic uh, of, a, of a movie involving five... Teenagers who are on Saturday detention and the adventures they have in the library uh, for detention. It's great. It's a good flick. If you haven't seen it, Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, Anthony Michael Hall, Ali Sheedy, all great actors in their own rights. 
uh, and it's a great ensemble piece. And finally, February 19th, uh, East Enders, the BBC One soap opera set in the fictional London borough of Walford, debuts. It uh, is, has gone on to uh, have 6,850 episodes uh, in classic soap opera style, uh, and I believe is still on the air today, uh, if not recently having gone off the air. So, And that is the stuff that is was going on, uh, some tidbits that were going on during the time that these issues were on the shelf. Uh, so let's get into today's issues. Uh, starting with Tales of the Teen Titans, number 53, released February 7th, 1985, cover date May 1985. No real debuts in this one, although we do see Slade Wilson, uh, Deathstroke, the Terminator for the first time, uh, although I feel like we possibly saw him in some sort of flashback, but I don't quite remember. Uh, so let's get into the issue uh actually sorry (laughs) sorry i'm out of practice on the production side uh this issue was written by marv wolfman uh penciled by rich buckley inked by mike DiCarlo, lettered by phil felix oh that's fun and uh colored by adrian roy or wah as always i don't know if they're french i should really look that up so i'd know uh but as always let's start with the cover the cover, we see a shot in between the legs of Azrael, the winged uh, alien from last issue and from New Teen Titans that we covered, um, I don't know how many episodes back. Uh, and through the legs, we see uh, Nightwing, Cyborg, uh, Wonder Girl is back, and Starfire. And they are surrounding Lilith, and Cyborg's sort of holding on to the shoulders of Lilith, and they're all kind of looking shocked at, at this scene in front of them, uh, which we cannot see since we are only seeing through the legs of Azrael. And it says, you know, Tales of the Teen Titans at the top, and then it has a sort of like three little things uh, going on underneath it. It says, beginning the trial of the Terminator, introducing a secret from beyond the stars, plus... The Titans play tennis, parentheses, really? Uh, Which is true because we start out the issue with them playing tennis in Titans Tower. Cyborg is working on some sort of uh, invention in his his workshop. And uh, Dick Grayson, Starfire, uh, Wonder Girl, uh, Donna Troy, and her new husband, Terry Long, are playing doubles. Uh, which means, if you don't know, tennis is two on each side, uh, teams. And we see the title of this issue, which is, it says Angel, it's crossed out, and then it says Devil on the Wing. So, it's, <laughs> uh, and they're they're playing back and forth tennis in there. And they're talking about, you know, well, I guess they're really just sort of doing sort of game, tennis game banter, and, you know, Terry and Donna have just returned from their honeymoon uh, because they've recently gotten married. Uh, I believe three issues ago in Tales of the Teen Titans number 50 is when they get. That's the wedding issue. And uh, through, you know, bad play by Dick and Starfire, they lose. And Terry and Donna win and they're very happy. And then Cyborg comes in to show off his new invention, which is a sort of virtual reality hologram total sensory projection unit uh so he you know makes it seem like they're on a volcanic maybe in prehistoric times and then they 
are in ancient Greece and stuff. It's a very weird, like, I don't know why this was included in the story. Maybe just flavor. Um, but uh, we then see outside of the Titan's Tower, we see uh, the silhouette of Lilith. And she was riding the sort of weird platform thing that transports the Titans across the river. Uh, and she is... is riding that and kind of just, you know, waiting for it to get to the tower when suddenly from uh, nearby on shore, she sees, or she is called to, says, you Titan, the one they call Lilith, you were a fool to come out here alone. And she looks and it's Deathstroke, the Terminator. And he says, I'm the Terminator. I'm going to kill you. Ha 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 ha. And he shoots some sort of laser at her, destroying the platform and throwing her into the river. Uh, which is weird because Slade Wilson, the Terminator, has been in jail since he was captured by the Titans awaiting trial. Uh, she then swims back to, or she swims to Titans Tower and uh, comes into the tennis room of the tower and, and is soaking wet and explains what happened to her to all the rest of the Titans and, and Terry Long. And, you know, Dick says, well, that's impossible. I just got off the phone with the DA uh, to make sure that we're still all testifying at the trial. And he, of course, is still there. And so they're very confused about that because after the attack, the Terminator just disappeared. He didn't do anything after that. He didn't, like, come and finish the job, obviously, anything like that. Uh, but Lilith also keeps getting precognitive flashes because that's her superpower is that she has precognition so she can see the future uh and i believe read minds as well but um she keeps thinking about the spaceship that uh star labs found in the arctic which we know about from teen tales of the teen titans number 52 which was weird reading this one because i was like shouldn't we be picking up right where that one left off where like lilith is in the room with with that alien which we know is Azrael and uh but I guess we just cut to you know days later or something like that so uh, you know they the two the four people playing tennis start playing tennis again and we just basically get a recap of kind of what happened last issue and the whole situation uh with with Jericho and his mom and they're they're being held by Interpol over in Europe because of their activities last issue and uh, Donna Troy and Terry Long win again. Uh, Dick is not good at tennis, apparently. Him and him and Corey are not good at tennis. Uh, they hit the showers. It says that. We don't obviously see anything in the showers because this is not a dirty magazine. This is a magazine for all ages. Uh, we then cut to the courtroom uh, where the Terminator's trial is going to uh, start soon. Uh, and we see a familiar face getting behind the uh, bench uh, for to be the judge in this case. Uh, I'll give you a second to guess. Uh, it, is a, it is a character that we have covered. Uh, it's a character that we're going to cover this episode, too. Uh, let me just give you a second. Okay. Did you guess? Did you guess Adrian Chase, a.k.a. Vigilante? If you did, good job, because that's it. Adrian Chase, newly appointed judge to the New York court, uh, is going to be presiding over the Terminator's case. And we see uh, a, a text box that says, For Adrian Chase, newly appointed judge to the New York court, was once a masked crime fighter himself, 
who dealt out lethal justice under name under the name the vigilante. So we get a sort of editor's note here where it says, see vigilante number 20, which means that the vigilante that we're covering this week is about, uh, was in the past in terms of this issue of Tales of the Teen Titans. Because as we know, Adrian Chase is still the vigilante, but he is giving it up. So in, in vigilante number 20, it must be his final rodeo as vigilante where he gives it up to become uh, a judge and and deems it necessary to only fight crime from one side of the law uh we see garfield logan he is uh beast boy sitting in the courtroom he's he's as we know very very worked up about the case very worked up about the terminator and he's sitting next to a, a woman with pink hair who i've never seen before he calls her jillian no idea who she is so that'll be a nice little mystery uh um and he's uh he's saying you know i'll feel better when the determinator has been executed nothing less for what he did to me for what he did to tara one way or another he's going to pay and then the thought bubble bubble he says and i've made certain he will bum 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 ominous we then cut to star labs where they are uh, experimenting on this alien the winged alien uh, that we know is Azrael, but nobody else in this book knows. Uh, and they're experimenting on him. They're like, oh, yeah, he's not human, all that kind of stuff. Uh, because obviously he's got wings attached to his back. Typically humans don't have that. Um, uh, the Titans all arrive, Lilith and uh, Nightwing and Starfire and Cyborg and Wonder Girl. And Lilith senses that something's wrong with the alien. She comes, she bursts through the door and just has this urge to to free him and touch him. Um, and she starts to uh, irradiate heat. Just uh, a burning, burning heat irradiating from her body. So she rushes past the scientists and uh, busts the alien out of his uh, sort of experimentation apparatus. And... Um, she says, I'm freeing him. He's not a laboratory animal, not something to be probed and tested and experimented with. He's special. And somehow through him, or maybe because of him, I may learn who I am. Which we get another editor's note here that says, see the new Teen Titans, number 7 through 10, now on sale. Which, you'll remember, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on which number of teen, new Teen Titans we covered already but it's the issue where lilith's mom uh the sun goddess is revealed and uh which is about six months after this so uh it's a little bit of it's a little bit of foreshadowing things that are happening in other books but it's in the future which is actually kind of clever i feel to have two different titles that are at different points in time so they can make references to each other um because you can then go and read the thing that they're talking about even though it's in the future you know whereas if it was just one title she would make this reference and then you know six issues later if if each issue is a month which that's typically not how it is but however many issues it takes to go six months in universe we then get the payoff which is uh less sort of fulfilling and it's also worse for book sales you know this this makes people think oh my gosh we're gonna learn about little origins i gotta go buy the noon teen titans seven through ten 
So uh, they're all very confused about why Lilith is doing this. She's acting weird. She's irradiating a like intense heat that makes everybody but Starfire have to leave the room. And Starfire like slowly tries to like make her way towards Lilith to stop her from doing what she's doing, thinking that this alien alien is having some sort of f- control over her. And but eventually the heat gets too much for even Starfire, who is a solar powered uh, alien just like Superman. Uh, but it, she she needs to get out of the room, so she blasts a hole and flies off. Uh, Nightwing and uh, the rest of the Titans bust in and are like, "We gotta we gotta do something. We gotta talk some sense into Lilith." She uses a sort of like telekinetic, not telekinetic, telepathic, like a mind blast, like a a, a yellow ray shoots out of her forehead, uh, and almost hits Nightwing, but he is knocked out of the way by Wonder Girl. And finally, Cyborg says enough with this and hits her with um, a couple million decibels of white sound uh, or white noise uh, and knocking her out. Azrael then flies off because he is uh, confused. He has no memory of who he is, just like Lilith. Um, And he flies off because he is scared of what is going on. Uh, Starfire uh, then flies back and sees him trying to escape. And Cyborg thinks that he can catch Azrael by just jumping out the window and catching him. But Azrael's obviously a lot more maneuverable in the air than Cyborg is with uh, just jumping. Uh, so Starfire catches him, brings him back inside. And then Donna Troy and Starfire chase after Azrael while Cyborg and uh, Ro- not Robin, Nightwing grab Sky Cycles uh, and, and fly off chasing him as well we then cut back to the courtroom where the court uh case or the 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 court case what is is that the right word the court case court is in session that's what i'm trying to say uh with this trial the trial the trial uh and they are establishing what uh the slade wilson is uh, being tried for as being the mercenary known as the Terminator, having kidnapped uh, a Wall Street broker, Samuel Adams, last August 15th, and another editor's note to uh, Titans number 34. So about 20, uh, tw- you know, almost 20 months ago, I- outside of time, twenty almost 20 issues ago. Uh, and uh, also the willful destruction of private property in pursuit of the kidnapping and uh, illegally having an arsenal of weapons for criminal purposes. Uh, Garfield then makes an outburst and says, what about killing me me or trying to destroy Atlantis? And what about Tara? And uh, Jillian kind of pulls him back down, and Adrian Chase says, Mr. Logan, one further outburst, and I'll have you removed from the courtroom because I don't know if you've ever been in court as an audience member but you're supposed to shut up you're supposed to zip it and just kind of listen and watch um so garfield's letting his emotions get the better of him we then have a few pages of just kind of uh chase scene between you know starfire and wonder girl and and cyborg and robin all chasing after asriel asriel doesn't know anything he doesn't know where he is he doesn't know who he is um he doesn't know how he got there and uh, everyone has this kind of feeling like oh, i don't really want to hurt him you know i just have this feeling like he's not trying to hurt anybody but i guess i have to and it just feels like a lot of filler because there's no real 
sort of, you know, revelations or anything like that. It's all just sort of like kind of talking in circles. Uh, so I'm just going to sort of briefly summarize that. You know, they're, they're chasing after him through the city. Uh, he eludes them multiple times. He knocks over a window washer cart on accident. Uh, and uh, Nightwing and, and Wonder Girl have to catch them. And Starfire chases after Azrael. But he, you know, goes around a corner and then suddenly disappears. And, uh, and that's weird. It's unexplained why or how he did that. Uh, the Titans then have to make it to court so they can testify. And uh, we then cut to the courtroom uh, where uh, Slade Wilson's lawyer objects to uh, Donna Troy being a witness uh, or being a, not witness, a, yeah, a witness testifying for the, for the prosecution. And uh, because she doesn't reveal, like, all of these masked superheroes, Cyborg, Starfire, Nightwing, Wonder Girl, they don't reveal their identities. And so he feels that it is uh, against uh, the rules that they can just, you know, not have their identities revealed and can say all these things about his client. But there is precedent set in this universe, in the DC universe, the ruling in the 1979 case Joker v. The Batman uh, made acceptable a proven masked crime fighter's need for the preservation of a personal identity, even in a court of law. So that is why in The Flash, The Flash is being tried as The Flash, and Kid Flash testified as Kid Flash and not Wally West. Uh, so that is that is interesting that there is a precedent set in a court of law uh in this universe about superheroes and their identities. Um, so Donna then testifies that she knows that Slade Wilson is the Terminator because they captured him uh, in the Hive, H-I-V-E, uh, it's an acronym, uh, in their undersea base. They unmasked him, revealing the Terminator to be Slade Wilson. Uh, the, the prosecution sort of says, you know, uh, no more questions for her, but uh, I, I want the right to reserve, to recall the witness, which is a thing that happens. And uh, then the uh, defendant or the defense attorney, he gets up and he asks, um, he asked Wonder Girl if she was uh, present for the accused kidnapping of Samuel Abrams, uh, the Wall Street broker, um, that Slade Wilson is being tried for. And she said, well, no, I wasn't, but uh, the Terminator took over TV station and, and claimed credit for the kidnapping. Along with most New Yorkers, I saw him holding Mr. Abrams as a, his hostage. Uh, the defense attorney just holds up, then holds up a picture of the Terminator, and he says, uh, the Terminator wears a full body costume, including face mask, correct? And, and Wonder Girl says, yes. Uh, but uh, but she, is, of course, cut off by the defense attorney. He says, can you be certain that Slade Wilson is the man in this Terminator costume who kidnapped Samuel Abrams? She, of course, cannot because she was not there uh, in the studio with him uh, and did not see him without the mascot. So it could be anybody. The defense attorney then says, in fact, the Terminator attacked one of your own group earlier this morning, didn't he? Which, how does he know about that? The only people that know about that would be obviously the person who did it and uh, the five titans who were there. Uh, so that's suspicious. 
And she says yes, and he says no further questions. Uh, later, uh, Samuel Abrams is on the stand, and he, you know, he establishes that he was kidnapped. He was held captive by the Terminator, and uh, you know, the Terminator threatened him, threatened to cut his throat if he didn't do what he said. He heard the Terminator speak, but he couldn't identify it because it was electronically filtered, and he never saw the Terminator without his face mask. And so the defense attorney asks, so you can't identify his voice, and you never saw his face. Can you swear beyond a shadow of a doubt that Slade Wilson is the man who held you prisoner? And Abram says, when you put it that way, no, I, I can't. And uh, the final panel of the issue is Garfield kind of a shocked face, a shocked green face saying no with an exclamation point. And then at the bottom we say, we see next, blind justice. So the, the trial will continue. Uh, a lot of trials. We got the trial of the Flash. We got the trial of the Terminator. 80s were very into, you know, courtrooms. Which, hey, I love a good courtroom drama uh, like film. Like we've got 12 Angry Men or A Few Good Men or... Uh, the verdict, trial of Nuremberg, uh, all sorts of good, all sorts of good courtroom stuff going on uh, in film, uh, and that's going to do it for Tales of the Teen T- New, nope, Tales of the Teen Titans, not Tales of the New Teen Titans, uh, number fifty-three. Uh, so let's move on to uh, Vigilante number seventeen. Vigilante 17 was released February 7th, 1985, with a cover date of May 1985. Uh, no debuts in this uh, issue, mostly because Vigilante is very, very self-contained, other than the fact that he is a character that exists in DC's New York City, because we saw that last issue uh, in Tales of the Teen Titans number 53. Uh, but on the production side of this issue, it was written by Alan Moore, guest this two-part issue storyline is a special guest writer alan moore's work uh with artist jim bakey annie parkhouse as the letterer and and the colorist is tatiana wood because it's t-a-t-j-a-n-a so i didn't know specifically how that was uh pronounced and so the the artist of of jim bakey is also guesting on this two-part uh storyline which is called father's day uh and it involves uh some domestic violence so uh trigger warning for you know anyone who has dealt with uh, domestic violence or i guess it's implied sexual assault as a child uh vigilante gets into very very dark topics and i mean it's alan moore so like he's the king of writing dark topics like just look at swamp thing uh but i just wanted to let everybody know that that's something that comes up in this issue because i know that you know it's it's tough for some people to hear about that so but let's get into it let's talk about the uh cover to start we see at the top we see special issue issue by alan moore and jim bakey uh vigilante says father's day with an exclamation point and we see a blonde woman in a in an orange dress and vigilante are sort of cowering in a corner they are both sort of scratched up their clothes and, and costume is, is ripped, exposing scratches all over their bodies. And we see a hairy uh, arm, like a man's arm, but I mean just like an, a man's arm that has body hair. You know, he's not a gorilla or anything like that. Um, holding a large knife that's gleaming in the light. Um, so, uh, let's get into it. 
it starts off with, uh, we see like these little snippets of scenes in two different places. We see the uh, bedroom of Adrian Chase, Chase, just like little sort of shots of it, really close-up shots of it. Uh, the phone is ringing. We see his vigilante glove is sort of like haphazardly sort of thrown over a book on a table. And we see a woman in uh, an apartment uh, calling, and she is like, very, very distressed. She's like, oh, come on, come on, come on. Please, please, please. You know, like that feeling you get when you want to get somebody on the phone, but that's taking too long for them to answer. Uh, we also see sitting behind her on a chair is a, a young girl who is blonde as well, uh, presumably this woman's daughter. We do learn later it is her daughter. And we see bags are packed uh, next to her. Um, and he answers the phone. It's late at night, so he's sleeping. Uh or maybe it's not late at night, because if you think about it, Vigilante works at night, so maybe it's like early evening, maybe it's like 5 o'clock, uh, which would make sense, because in the next uh, the next page, we see a man, and I will say he does look like a villain, a villainous-looking man. He is uh, walking through the door of an apartment building. He's checking mail. He's sort of crumpling it up, and he's slowly making his way up the stairs. All the while, we see text box of the conversation that this woman is having with Adrian Chase. And she uh, tells him that he is, she is uh, Carl Lineker's wife. Um, and Adrian reveals, yeah, he was the prosecution over, uh, he says, the business with Jody, who we, uh, I'll let you know, is this woman's daughter, uh, Jody Lineker. And uh, Adrian asks, they let him out? And he's like, Jesus, When? Uh, and they and he's like, oh, it's revealed that he got out for good behavior. Adrian doesn't re- believe that, um, and he's he's asking, has he tried? Um, I'm assuming contacting them. Um, um, and and she reveals to him that she thinks that he knows where they live, and Adrian says, listen, Mrs. Lineker, Joanne. I, look, I'm sorry, that just sounds a little paranoid. No, 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 I'm sorry. Yes, yes, I do remember Carl. Yes, you're right. So we're only we're only hearing one half of the conversation. But it's, uh, there's uh, Carl Lineker is a you know, ex-con who did something. Uh, it's implied later that it's likely sexual assault of his uh, daughter and likely domestic abuse of Joanne because of what we see in a page or so. Um, but he has been released from prison, and he is coming to get them. Um, he has found out their locations and uh, is coming to get them. So we then see the door of their apartment. It is locked and, and chained. Uh, and uh, Carl, is uh, he, he kind of he tries to open the door and starts to like bust through the, the wood of the, the deadbolt and is kind of straining on the chain, and he says, Joanne, which I could just imagine this would be very, very creepy, especially, you know, if you're someone who's dealt with domestic violence and all that kind of stuff before. Like, the man, the the cause of your torment has arrived, and he, he says in a creepy voice your name. Uh, so Joanne tells uh, Jody to go out on the fire escape, and uh, all the while, as, as Adrian's been on the phone, he's been turning or changing into his vigilante costume. And uh, I'm going to explain the scene that happens in this apartment, but know that the entire time vigilante is, you know, putting on his costume, getting on his vigilante motorcycle and driving over there. Okay. But this is what happens in the apartment after 
Joanne tells Jody to go out of the fire escape. Uh, Joanne goes to the kitchen and is going to grab a knife. Uh, she tells Jody to go out and she'll follow her in a bit. And uh, uh, Carl breaks through the door, busts off its hinges. He's a big dude. He is not a small man. And he's like, Joanne, Jody, come on, who's got a kiss for daddy? Hmm? And he kind of goes through the, the door into the kitchen and ha- hiding behind the door with a knife is Joanne. Carl realizes she's back there and kicks the door into her, uh, kind of slamming her up against the wall and falling onto, and she falls onto the ground, losing grip of her knife. And Carl says, hello, Joanne, where's that little... It's W H O R E. I don't like to say things like that. It's derogatory to women, and that's not my steez. Um, And so he grabs the knife and grabs her hair and says, Oh, no, 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 no. No needn't answer. You'd only lie, wouldn't you? Know what, Joanne? That makes you obsolete. We then cut outside to Jody, uh, kind of cowering next to a building, and we see a speech bubble coming from her apartment window, and it's just like nine E's. It's just like E, which is a weird sound to make, but I mean, maybe that's like the best way to visualize a scream. I don't know how to visualize a scream because like a scream is not really even letters, right? It's just like a guttural noises from your throat in like a very high pitched way. Uh, so Jody hears this and like runs off. We then cut to uh, two women driving in a, what looks to be maybe like a, oh, uh, looks to be possibly a Chrysler, but we're talking like in, like a like 60s, 70s Chrysler, uh, cause it's got huge fins. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking 70s, uh, or, or early 80s. Um, it's got huge tail fins, uh, and inside we see two women and they are driving along, uh, they're smoking some weed, uh, one is, is drinking wine in the back seat. Um, they're talking about, you know, stuff. Spoiler alert, these are two, um, sex workers who, uh, are, you know, driving around. They're friends, they're roommates. Uh, one is named Louise and the other one, we only know of her name as Fever, I believe. I don't know if we ever learn her real name. Um, so, uh, they're driving down the street. And Jody, in her, you know, fleeing, runs out into the street and almost gets hit by their car. Uh, they stop, and you know, uh, one uh, Louise, she accidentally swallowed the joint that they were smoking, uh, which painful. It's uh, very hot. Uh, if you don't know, uh, uh, weed when it is burning gets very, very hot, hotter than uh, cigarettes, I believe. Um, so she's not having a great time. But Fever uh, runs over and kind of like you know, talks to the kid and Jody's like, don't hurt me. And Fever's like, well, I'm, we're not going to hurt you. And she's like, were you running from somebody? And Jody says, my dad, I think he's, I think he's hurt my mom. He, um, and Louise doesn't want anything to do with this because I mean, we learn later that they are sex workers. So they're not fans of police and domestic violence and stuff like that. That typically brings police. Um, so, uh, Fever, but Fever is, is very, like, concerned about Jody, and she says, why is he chasing you? Have you, you know, stolen something, uh, or whatever? And, uh, Jody says, he, he wants to do what he did last time, and Fever's like, oh, what did he do, you know, last time? 
And Jody says, he, when I was eight, he, he, and she kind of trails off and we see a look on her face and it's just a devastating look on her face. And so, you know, Louise changes her tune and, and Fever and her, they say, you know, they give her like, they call her kamikaze because earlier they made a joke about um, Pearl Harbor and uh, her just like kind of jumping in front of their car like the Japanese pilots did uh, in terms of like dive bombing. Uh, in Pearl Harbor, and uh, they they get her in the car and they say, "Oh, let's go over to my place and and we'll see if you know we've got some cookies and we'll we'll figure out what to do with you um, when we get there." Okay, so heavy stuff. Uh, it's about to get more heavy. Uh, we cut back to the Lineker apartment, and Vigilante has arrived, but it's obviously much too late. The apartment is in shambles. Just everything is destroyed. The kitchen is ransacked. The it seems like he broke the couch in half. It's it's not clear, but it's 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 a messy scene in there. And um, vigilante finds the body of Joanne. She is propped up against a wall. There's a large uh, smeared blood stain behind her, as if she was sort of I don't know dragged against the wall. And uh, it's a, a rough death. Uh, so Vigilante closes her eyes, uh, you know, classic. We've seen it in movies all the time. You close the eyes of a dead person, and he leaves. He has a determined look. We see his eyes through his visor, and he has a very determined look on his face. We then cut to uh, Fever and Louise's apartment. Uh, it's a cool space. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of weed in there. Um, we learn later it's about 50 kilos of uh, Colombian weed. <laughs> Uh, which, I mean, teach their own, but I don't know if you should have that much in your apartment. Um, so uh, they ask Jody if she, you know, has anybody that we, they can call or uh, anything like that. And she says, well, her mom was trying to reach Mr. Chase. He's a DA. And, of course, Louise is not into calling a DA because DA means cops, probably. Uh, district attorneys typically are pretty, you know hand-in-hand with cops, since they work on the same side of the law, technically. Um, And Fever's, well, Fever is is the caring, nurturing one of the two, and she says, you know what, we'll we'll give him a a ring in the morning, let's just get some sleep. Um, And uh, so they do. Uh, We then cut to the next morning, and uh, Fever has gone to a payphone to call this Mr. Chase, the DA, uh, and Adrian Chase is again in bed, probably because he was woken up uh, from his previous night's sleep. And he answers the phone, and, and she says, uh, I'm a friend of Jody Lineker. Uh, she's staying with me, you know, at the moment. It's a temporary accommodation. And we this is another one of those situations where we only hear one side of the conversation. Uh, so... Fever says, you know, listen, listen, you're going to meet me at the following address. No cops, okay? Everything's cool. Um, And she directs him to an alleyway by a grocery store. And she says, I'm going to be there in 15 minutes, and I'm going to be gone in 20. So he's got a five-minute window to get there and meet her to then get Jody. So Adrian uh, puts on his vigilante costume uh, and drives over there on his vigilante motorcycle. And he... Uh, we then cut to back to Louise and Fever's apartment, and Jody is <laughs> Jody asks, "Hey, 
Uh, Louise, don't you have to like get out of bed? It's it's 1030. Don't you have to go to work? <laughs> and Louise says, this is where I work. Um, and she says, you know, why don't you fix yourself some breakfast? And, and Jody says, well, there's only vegetarian stuff of, of fevers. Uh, I really want godzillions. Um, but fever said I shouldn't go out to the store in case, you know, my dad is out there. And uh, Louise, just like all of us, is confused about what is a godzillion. And she says, yeah, they're like little green toasted things that look like Godzilla, which sound awesome. They sound like Godzilla-shaped Pop-Tarts, which I love Pop-Tarts. Uh, and, and making them fun shapes, that'd be cool because they're only rectangles. Like, let's let's get fun with this, you know? Um, and Louise says, you have just to, uh, no, that doesn't matter. She says, uh, listen, if I go out and buy you this crap, will you leave me alone? And uh, Jody has a sort of uh, Freudian slip, and she says, sure, Mom, whatever you want. And she kind of trails off. And because uh, we've all done that in school, like where we've called the teacher Mom on accident just because of the way they said something, right? Not just, not just me, right? Okay, good. Uh, and so Louise is kind of like, oh, gosh, right. She is going through a tough time right now. Uh, and she says, uh, listen, uh, you stay here. I'm going to go get you the godzillions um, and maybe pick you up a comic book or something. Um, I'll be back. We then cut to the alleyway where Fever has instructed Adrian Chase to go. She's like, oh, he's got two minutes. And suddenly from behind her, a mouth claps over her mouth. And he's and the man who is vigilante says, you've got five minutes, or five seconds, Jody Lineker, start talking. And uh, he kind of grabs her by the lapels, turns her around and grabs her by the lapels, and he says, well. And so Fever then headbutts him in the face. And then, uh, you know, Vigilante gets mad, slams her against the wall. He says, you're going to regret that. And then Fever says, oh, my God, the baby. And Vigilante's like, a baby? She's like, oh, my baby, I think I'm going to... She's like making fake puking noises. Uh, and, and Vigilante, not being a heartless jerk, says, oh, uh, let me... Um. And uh, Fever then throws a trash can lid into his midsection and starts to run away. Vigilante then tackles her. And he's like, all right, right now, tell me about Jody Lineker. Um, and... Uh, Fever says, you are going to get the hell off me, masked crusher, or I'm going to start screaming rape. Uh, I'll be, it'll be in the papers. They'll bust your butt out of the Justice League of America. And Vigilante stands up and he's like, I'm not in the Justice League of America. Because, let's be honest, I like Vigilante. He's not Justice League of America, you know, stuff, quality. Uh, he's a Batman without a lot of Batman's training or gadgets. So, uh, definitely not justice league of america kind of well maybe justice league detroit because they kind of they're not no offense to justice league of detroit i love them too but they're kind of like a lesser version of justice league um and so she makes a joke about how they already threw him out um and she says i guess you must do this thing this sort of thing a lot and they finally kind of stop they cut through the artifice of like they're they're both here because they care about jody um Fever asks where Adrian Chase is, and Vigilante, of course, says, I'm, you know, Chase sent me, and Fever says, well, what did I say about cops, and you're a super cop, and she just, she just decides that it, it doesn't matter. She says, the kid's okay, I found her, and I've been taking care of her over at my place, and 
uh, Vigilante says, you've been taking care of her. I thought he assumed that she had kidnapped Jody or was working with Carl or something like that. Um, and he asks, well, why don't you just invite Chase to your apartment? And Fever reveals, well, because I've got 40, oh, it was only 40, not 50, 40 kilos of good Colombian weed stashed up there. That's why. Now let me hear that bit again about you not being a cop because otherwise he's going to snitch. And, you know, nobody likes a snitch. Snitches get stitches. Don't talk to police. Uh, We then cut to the grocery store. It must just be called The Bonus, which is a cool name for a store. And uh, Louise has has bought some Godzillions, uh, and she's talking to the cashier. And the cashier makes a, a crack about how's business, you know, with the recession, uh, because a recession was going on in the, in the 80s. Um, and uh, Louise says, honey, last Friday, I had 15 customers. I tell you, I was up and down those stairs all night. And the... <laughs> The cashier says, "Oh, Louise, your poor feet." Uh, and so she, you know, she checks him, checks out uh, Louise's Godzillions, and she, Louise mentions, "Oh yeah, I got a kid stopping over one of Fever's stray kittens, you know." Uh, and at this time, we see the sort of the side of a of a man uh, in a trench coat, and uh, you know, Louise says, "Oh, see, you know, see you next time." And the cashier's like, next. And uh, this guy, he just, he puts down what he was going to buy, which I can't read. Let's see if I can zoom in and see what he was going to buy. I'm nosy like that. Plaster dressing. Oh, okay. So he's injured. This man is injured. Um, and But he just puts it down on the conveyor belt and just walks by. And it's then revealed to be Carl Lineker. Uh, because, I mean... I don't think they went that far. They obviously lived in the same borough or neighborhood in New York um, because Jody couldn't have ran that far. Uh, so uh, Carl is going to do bad things. Just just know that. We then cut back to Fever and Vigilante, and they are riding on Vigilante's bike to uh, Fever's place. And the neighborhood uh, kids, uh, teens, ad- adults sitting on a stoop, they kind of they go, woo-woo! New boyfriend, Fever. Uh, so we then learn uh, why she's called Fever. She's called, uh, it's, it's short for White Line Fever. Um, because She says, because I drive good. But I don't know if I've ever heard that phrase before. Oh, it's a movie. Oh, it's a movie. It's a 1975 film. An independent trucker with a pregnant wife fights cargo crooks and the big shot they work for. It is not well-reviewed. It, it has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is free to watch on Tubi, though. So that's that's good. I don't know anybody who's in it, so clearly a very low budget. Uh, so that must be a reference to the truck driving that he does. Okay. The more you know. The more you know. Uh, she says, because I drive good. And he says, well, you know, it's a pretty strange name. And she says, yeah, I guess. What's yours? And he says, uh, the vigilante. She says, oh, right. Uh, right through here. <laughs> um, and so she she brings Vigilante upstairs to their apartment. She's like, oh, Louise is going to love this, you know, bring a superhero home. And she, you know, she opens the door and uh, says, Louise, come on, uh, open up. I don't know why she doesn't just open the door herself. Does she not have a key? It's weird. I, I mean, she lives there. Uh, so she opens the door and the apartment's been ransacked. 
very similar to the Lineker's apartment. And Fever is wondering, like, where is Louise? Like, she's calling for Louise, and Louise is not hearing her. They find Louise kind of in a pool of... I mean, the coloring is weird, but I'm assuming it's her blood. It's like a pink liquid. Uh, Either she spilled, you know, Hawaiian punch, uh, or she is bleeding to death. And uh, Louise kind of in a sort of really, really stilted voice says of fever. I tried to stop him. And I'm sorry, followed me back from the store. I tried to stop him. Um, and Vigilante's trying to get information. He's like, ask her how long ago. And Fever's like, shut up, Louise, honey, you're going to be all right. And Louise's like, I am. And Fever says, of course you are. You're going to be just fine. And Louise says, oh, that's good. Who's that with you? I c- can't see too good. And Fever says, oh, he's a superhero. Um, and say, I told you it'd be okay. I got a superhero to help us. And Louise says, a superhero? Someone told me uh, this joke about superheroes. What did they say to the superhero when he tried to join the Mile High Club? And Fever says, I, I don't know, Louise. What did they say? And Louise says, they said, sorry, buddy, but she doesn't finish the sentence because she dies. And Fever starts screaming, Louise, Louise. And Vigilante's like, easy. And uh, Fever's like, easy, man, you just get the... You get out of my face with your easy. She was my best friend. I'm going to find that bastard Lineker, whatever his name is. I'm going to really mess him up, man. He's posthumous, which is like a very cool phrase. Like, because like typically things like posthumous awards and posthumous things, it's after someone's dead. But just calling someone posthumous, that's cool. Because like, he's dead, you know. Um, and Vigilante, of course, is like, heck, Fever, come on, this is crazy talk. This is revenge. Oh, sorry. I thought that was also Vigilante. She says, this is crazy talk. And Fever says, this is revenge in all capitals. What's so crazy about wanting revenge? And Vigilante then kind of is like looking around and he looks into the kitchen and he sees a big butcher knife kind of cut through this box of uh, Godzillions. And uh, he says, yeah. Okay, let's go. Because he remembers that Jody's just a kid, you know? And and this man is perverse and violent. And I do learn, we do learn that uh, Godzillions are, are not, in fact, Pop-Tarts. They are cereal, which is still cool. I would eat the heck out of some gosh dang Godzilla cereal. Godzilla-shaped cereal? That'd be cool. Uh, and then that is the end. We see next Judgment Day, which will be the end of this two-part storyline of, of Father's Day. And uh, that's Vigilante. That's Vigilante number 17. Uh, very Vigilante feels like a very different comic book than standard DC sort of fare, you know? Because, I mean, the, the, the knock on DC for the longest time, it's like, oh, DC characters, all they do is smile and, and you know, be goody-goodies, you know? Well, Vigilante is not a smiler and he's not a goody-goody. He is... The, the, the book deals with a lot of heavy topics, which I think is very, you know, good and mature uh, because the, the medium of comic books can be a mature medium if it chooses to be. So... Yeah, cool. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, So let's move on to uh, Batman number 383. 
Batman 383 was released February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1985, with a cover date of May 1985. And we have a small debut of uh, Lucius Fox, the man who runs uh, Bruce Wayne's um, foundation, his companies, all that kind of stuff, uh, played famously by Morgan Freeman in the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Uh, and Lucius Fox originally debuted in Batman number 307 on October 12th, 1978, so a relatively new character in the grand scheme of Batman. Uh, on the production side, uh, this issue was written by Doug Munch, Munch? M-O-E-N-C-H. You know, no one's no one in the comic industry is just like, their last name's like Smith. It's always a name that gives me trouble. Uh, penciled by Gene Colan. Inked by Alfredo P. Alcala, lettered by Albert Tobias de Guzman, lettered also, I guess, by Ben Oda, and colored by Adrian Roy. Uh, or Wa. I, if I just found out, you know, which one it was, I wouldn't have to say both. Uh, so let's talk about the cover of this uh, issue. It is called A Night in the Life of Batman. And it's a very silly story, I will say. It feels very, very silver age e we haven't gotten to the point where batman is this sort of super serious you know all business kind of guy this is a very silly story about batman you know being on a run of having to both be batman at night and also appear in public as bruce wayne during the day so he hasn't gotten a lot of sleep and it's just a very silly story of you know bruce wayne falling almost falling asleep and and not being able to sleep through all these mishaps but uh the cover has a sort of white uh outline of batman over top all of these sort of like criminal things behind him that are you know presumably things that happen in in a night in the life of batman so it starts off with bruce ah sorry my computer did something weird Bruce uh, is finishing up a night as Batman in the Batcave. He's got some chores that he needs to do. And he's, but he is, he is yawning. He's like, I'm coming, pillow. I'm coming. Just, just give me a little time. So he does some repairs on the Batmobile and almost falls asleep three different times. Uh, and he does some programming of, of crime reports into the computer. And finally, he's able to put his, his Bruce Wayne robe on, take off his Batman costume, and walk up the stairs of the Batcave. And out the secret door behind the clock. Where we see Alfred Pennyworth, who we met for the first time in uh, Last World's Finest, I think 315, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, Alfred tells Bruce that he's got the painters and the repair contractors have arrived. And they need to give their estimates to Bruce. And Bruce is like, oh, come on. It's already three hours past on. It's like past my bedtime. But all right, let's go deal with them. And so Bruce just kind of just says, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever you want, as long as it doesn't cost too much, uh, you know, whatever's necessary. And, yeah, that that shade of white is great. Good. All right, now I'm going to go to bed. But before he can, Jason slides down the banister. Jason Todd, the current Robin, slides down the banister and says, oh, Bruce, the school bus is broke down, so I need you to give me a ride to school. And Bruce is like, oh, man. Uh, but he can't have Alfred do it because someone needs to watch the contractors, keep an eye on them, because who knows what those dirty peasants will do and if they're left unattended in this this fancy house. They'll steal everything. 
uh, classic rich people stuff. And Bruce is like, fine, yeah, I'll drive you to school. And uh, a lot of Bruce's like facial drawings in this book are very, very funny because he just looks like we've all been in that sort of state of, of sleepiness where like we're past exhausted. And so we kind of zone out and our eyes look glassed over and, and dead. Uh, so he drops Jason off at school, but then his teacher wants to talk to Bruce. And so he's like, oh, great. It's, I'm glad to talk to you. And she basically says, you know, Jason's been yawning in class. It's like, okay, well, that's children are allowed to yawn, you know. But basically Bruce is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what the problem is, and I'll make sure that Jason gets more sleep. He's like, and he's like, goodbye. He's like, yes, finally I can go home and sleep. But he gets a flat tire on the way home, and he has to fix it. And then when he gets back... He is is interrupted from getting to his bed by Lucius Fox, who wants to talk about some financial matters. And uh, a few hours later, they're like, great, we got it done. Lucius, I don't know what we talked about, but good night. And uh, Alfred's like, oh, it's noon. You should have some lunch while you're still up. And uh, Bruce almost collapses to the floor in sleep. And he says, okay, on second thought, maybe you should go up to bed. And as Bruce is walking up the stairs... Uh, the doorbell rings, and in comes Julia Pennyworth. Now, I learned about Julia Pennyworth. Actually, that's also another debut, but that wasn't on my list of things. That's, hmm. Let me quick find the uh, Julia Pennyworth debut. Doing it on the fly. You're getting a, a oh, huh. Because she says... Huh. She doesn't exist. Okay. Whatever. It is Alfred's daughter, whose name is Julia, who I, I guess I would call Julia Pennyworth, but I don't know. Um, she works for Vicki Vale at Picture News, um, and she has two tickets to the Is Jack Perlman concert tomorrow night, and uh, she wants Bruce to go with her, and he's like, oh, are you asking me on a date? And she says, yeah. Uh, I guess I am. He says, well, how does your boss feel about that? And she says, oh, you mean Vicky? She's the one who gave me the tickets. Of course, if you had a special understanding. And Bruce is like, oh, well, what we have is, um, ah, it's too hard to explain. Because if he has to sit around and explain, it's more time before he can get to his bed. And he's like, I accept. I'll go with you tomorrow night. And she says, wonderful. She says, uh, pick you up at uh, 7. And he's like, oh, no, it can't be 7 already. He says, and she says, what? He says, um, yes, seven will be wonderful. Because he's like, he's out of it. He's very, very exhausted. So he finally gets into his bed. And he's like, all right, time to drift off to sleep. But before he can, phone rings. Who's on the phone? Vicky Vale. She's like, I need to talk to you now. And he's like, well, what about tomorrow night? I don't have anything planned, even though he does. She's like, now, Bruce. And he's like, now? You mean like now, now? She's like, right now. And it's like, I get your schedule's, you know, packed as an idle playboy, but like, I'm coming, I'm, I'm coming to see you. And he's like, can you just give me an hour? And she says, no, I'm coming now. And he's like, all right. And he falls back asleep holding the phone. Uh, but before he can actually fall asleep, uh, the ceiling collapses onto him, or a portion of the ceiling collapses onto him. Because there was a leak in his attic that kind of ruined his bedroom ceiling, and the contractor above kind of broke through it. And he's like, okay, I'm going to go sleep in Jason's bed. And so he walks out of his bedroom, puts his foot directly into a pan, like a roller pan of paint. 
And uh, she's like, oh, well, I, I better go take a bath because I've got a lady coming to talk to me. He's like, Julia will be here in an hour, even though it's Vicky will be here in an hour. In an hour. And he's like, she's my butler's daughter's boss and the investigative photographer tracking me down for a talk. And so then uh, he gets in the bath. And he's uh, a little while later, uh, Penny uh, Alfred comes in, says, Vicky Vale has pulled into the driveway. And Bruce says, uh, what? Oh, then I must thank her for saving me from drowning. And you must be very proud of her, Jason. And Alfred is, of course, confused because none of that makes any sense. And Vicky then comes in and says, Bruce, this guy, Bill Model, which is, okay, that's, a, that's certainly a name, has proposed marriage. So you have to make up your mind about us, like if we're a thing or if we're not a thing, because I am tired of it. I'm sick of this sort of situationship that we have. Obviously, the situationship wasn't a term back in 1985, but I'm using it because I live in the year 2024. And uh, and Bruce is like, just I, you can't marry him. You don't even barely know him. And it's like, just calm down. And Vicky's like, Bruce. Maybe we need to, you know, take a vacation from whatever it is we have. So you can, like, if you want to go and dabble with other women or whatever. Um, Because I'm sick of this sort of, you know, situation that we're in. So pick me up tomorrow night at 7 or we're through. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, And he's about to go back up to bed when alfred says jason it's time it's time to pick jason up from school and bruce says yeah no i get it and so he, he jumps into the car in his robe and drives to jason's school and um then he picks jason up and he says jason we need to have a conversation if you want to keep being robin you gotta get more sleep or whatever and he's falling asleep at the wheel, and Jason's like kind of grabbing the wheel to steer it properly. And uh, and he says, Jason, you can't be Robin tonight, because uh, otherwise I'll have to talk to your teacher again, and I want to do that. So everyone's got to get good night's sleep. Except me, Batman, because I have to go out on patrol. So Bruce is like, but first I'm going to get some hours of sleep, because it's, you know, it's only the afternoon. So he has time to... To get some sleep before he goes out as Batman. But uh, Amanda Grosky is there. And if you don't know who Amanda Grosky is, that's fine. I didn't know who she was either. She is Jason's former caseworker uh, since he was a ward of the state. Um, and she's here for a visit to make sure that his you know, living situation is good. He's like, yeah, don't, don't worry. The first visit shouldn't take more than a few hours. And Bruce is like, a few hours? So a few hours actually turns into five hours. And uh, finally, Amanda leaves, and it's dark out. And up in the sky, what should be there but the bat signal? So Bruce then leaves, puts on his Batman costume, and goes and deals with a armed robbery situation in Gotham. Uh, but as he puts on his Batman costume, he gets a sort of like second wind, or as he says, probably ninth wind, um, because he obviously loves being Batman. It's what he. It's what he does. So he. You know, he sneaks into this sort of store that this armed robber is in and, you know, defeats him, knocks him out, uh, then, you know, heads to police headquarters because the bat signal's on again, talks to Gordon, learns about the string of rapes that have happened, 
um, in the past six nights. Um, and so Bruce then, or Batman then goes to uh, the park where these uh, incidents are happening, and he discovers that the rapist has been dressing up as a, a woman uh, to elude the undercover cops that have been uh, stationed in the park because of all of the, the things that are happening. And, uh, you know, Bruce knocks him, or not Bruce, he's Batman. Batman knocks him out, uh, you know, saves, makes the park safe for women at night, even though what, I mean, what person in general is like, you know what I need to do? I need to walk through the poorly lit park in the middle of the night. I just got to do it. It's the only way I can get home. He then deals with a man trying to break into a house, knocks him out. Uh, an arsonist knocks him out. Uh, you know, someone trying to rob a safe, all that kind of stuff. Uh, classic Batman things. He's doing a lot. He's doing a lot of stuff. Uh, and finally, he stops an armed mugging uh, by finally knocking out a guy and then disappearing before the police arrive. And the guy who was in the process of being mugged says he was here just a minute ago where is he and we see in the final panel uh in text box it says not quite in the in the treetop but definitely where the wind blows unnoticed and we see batman sort of laying down kind of with his head up against a gargoyle and he says you know friend i think i'll just sleep right here for 24 hours straight and when i wake up i'll go home to bed yes i think that's exactly what i'll do and why not bruce wayne isn't doing anything tomorrow night Anyway, and then we see Z's because he's sleeping, which obviously he has two things to do tomorrow night, both at 7. He has to make a decision. Um, but yeah, like I said, kind of a very silly, very kind of throwaway issue of Batman. I mean, it gives you a glimpse inside the life of Bruce Wayne as, his, as he sort of tries to juggle being Batman and being Bruce Wayne. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of the stuff that I feel like Batman has. Like, he, he fights crime, sure, but he's not dealing with any villains. It's it's not an issue that if you were going to make, like, these are all of the necessary issues of Batman of all time that you need to read, this one wouldn't be in it. This one this one feels very Silver Age, and a lot of the Silver Age is very throwaway uh, just because of the silly nature of it. This also kind of doesn't feel like... This doesn't feel like Batman to me, you know, because I I grew up with the serious Batman from from post 90s era you know I, I didn't grow up with this super silly you know joker fish era of batman you know like the 1966 batman you know shark repellent batman all that kind of stuff so it doesn't feel right to me it doesn't feel like a very good issue because of that so because i like my issues to have i don't know story progression or stakes or anything like that so so yeah, but that is the final issue of this week's episode. A little bit shorter episode. I don't know if I just talked really fast or uh, summarized a bit more instead of going more in depth. I don't know what it was, but uh, I have I have finished the the issue for this episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, and so it's now time for the end of the episode. Things we all know what it is: the socials, Instagram, Twitter, Threads. I'll get back to posting covers and, and stuff like that. So check us out over there at all those places. And uh, as always, rate and review the podcast because it helps out. All that kind of stuff. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. Tell your lovers. But until next time, I'm your host, Nick Byers. 
This has been Issue by Issue Crisis, a DC Comics Completionist podcast, and I will see you next time.